Well, here we are, our last message in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so glad that so many of you guys came out tonight, um, hopefully to uh, hear this uh, epic conclusion. Not epic because I'm preaching it, but because it's truly epic here in God's Word. One of, uh, I think, the most powerful passages in all of the Word of God, and I want to begin by just reading it tonight. It's a shorter uh, chunk of Scripture, so... um, I want to read it with you, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 8 through 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, excuse me, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Father, we thank you for uh, this very helpful book, the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for this uh, privilege that we've had to study it here on Wednesday nights. And Lord, it's always a joy to be able to come to the end of of another book, another uh, book that we've been able to exposit and explain and, and hopefully apply to our lives. And I do pray that tonight... Lord, we would all be able to walk away with, with some life-changing application, something that would uh, stick with us like a well-driven nail for the rest of our lives, and that we could point back to this series on the book of Ecclesiastes as the, the thing that you use, the tool you use to change us in that particular area. And so we want to think about life uh, the way um, you want us to, and we know that this book is very helpful Towards that end, so we ask you to help us tonight. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, on Sunday I quoted from a book that we have been reading as pastors and elders. It's called "Dangerous Calling" by Paul Tripp, and uh, I wanted to begin tonight by quoting again from that book because there's a section um, in in this book that uh, when I read it, uh, I couldn't help but think about our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's more of a lengthy quote, so kind of settle in there and um, cozy up by the fire and uh, listen to uh, this this very profound um, observation and uh, insight into what is actually going on anytime we come to church together and uh, someone gets up here and preaches the Word of God. And uh, I'm the one that often has the privilege of being that one, that guy who preaches the Word of God. But uh, he, uh, Tripp here explains uh, in this section that I mentioned on Sunday, last Sunday, uh, the danger of losing your awe uh, about how we can sometimes forget who God is. And uh, he's got a chapter called Mediocrity. And this is what he writes. He said, you could argue that every worship service is little more than a glory war. 
The great question of the gathering is, will the hearts of this group of people be captured by the one glory that is truly glorious or by the shadow glories of the created world? As a pastor, I want to do everything I can to be used of God to capture the hearts of those gathered by the rescuing glory of God's grace, by the insight-giving glory of God's wisdom, by the hope-giving glory of His love, by the empowering glory of His presence, by the uh, rest-giving glory of His sovereignty, and by the saving glory of His Son. But I know that this is a battle. I'm speaking to people whose hearts are fickle and easily distracted. I know I'm talking to people who are seduced by other glories. I know I'm talking to people who live in light of God's glory every day and yet are capable of being functionally blind to its splendor. You convicted yet? I know I'm addressing the single lady who has set her heart on the affection of a certain young man whom she thinks will deliver her the happiness she's been craving. Sitting before me is the teenager who can't think beyond the glories of Facebook, Twitter, and the the latest video game. In the congregation is the middle-aged man whose heart is captured by the glory of somehow, some way recapturing his youth. A wife is sitting there wondering if she will ever experience the glory of the kind of marriage that she dreamed about, the kind she knows others have. A man sits in the crowd knowing that he feeds his soul almost daily on the dark and distorted glories of pornography and has made a master uh, and has become a master at shifting spiritual gears. Some listening are more excited about a new outfit, new home, new car, new shotgun, new sodded lawn, the opening of a new restaurant, a new vacation site, or that new promotion than they are about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of those who have gathered for worship, there are those who are distracted by grief, anger, discouragement, loneliness, envy, frustration, despair, or hopelessness because the glories that they have looked to for their meaning, purpose, and inner happiness have failed them once again. These glories have proven to be more temporary than they thought they would ever be. They have been more elusive than they seemed at a distance. They have blown up in their faces or dripped like sand through their fingers. And even when, they're one, and even when they were wonderful to experience, they didn't in fact leave their hearts satisfied. The buzz was short and the satisfaction elusive, so they sit there empty, hungry, hurt, angry, and confused. I don't know if you can relate to any of this, but I believing that this is oftentimes the case in people's hearts when they come to church. They come into worship in the middle of a war that they probably don't recognize. It is a war for the allegiance, the worship of their hearts. In ways they probably don't understand, they have again and again asked the creation to give them what only the creator can provide. They have looked horizontally again and again for what can only be found vertically. In other words, they're looking under the sun, right, for satisfaction and not rather than above the sun. They have asked people, situations, locations, and experiences to be the one thing they will never be, their savior, They have looked to these things to give them life, security, identity, and hope. They have asked these things to heal their broken hearts. They have hoped that these things would make them better people. And so a war rages and wounded soldiers sit before you. It is a glory war, a battle for what glory will rue their hearts, and in doing so, control their choices, words, and behaviors." He goes on to talk about some more things that I could read, but let me just wrap it up with this. Pastor, 
To these beaten down ones, you have been called as an ambassador of glory. You have been called to rescue those who are awe, discouraged, and awe confused. You are called to represent the one who is glory to people who, by means of suffering and disappointment, have become glory cynics. You have been called to be God's voice to woo them back. You are placed in their lives as a divine means of rescue, healing, and restoration. You have been called to speak into the confusion with gospel clarity and authority. You have been called to give glory-bound hope to those who have become hopeless. You are called to speak liberating truths to those who have become deceived. You have been called to plead with disloyal children to once again be reconciled to their Heavenly Father. You have been called to give glorious motivation to those who have given up. You have been called to shine the light of the glory of God into hearts that have been made dark by looking for life in all the wrong places. You have been called to offer the filling glories of grace To those who are empty and malnourished, you have been called to represent a glorious king who alone is able to rescue, heal, redeem, transform, forgive, deliver, and satisfy. I can't think of a a better book in God's word to woo glory cynics back to the glory of God than the book of Ecclesiastes. In light of the the war that rages in all of our hearts, um, this is the book we need. And Ecclesiastes, as we've been learning, is the personal memoirs of a man who looked for life in all the wrong places and who eventually found true meaning and true purpose and happiness and satisfaction in God alone. And so King Solomon will forever stand as the ultimate illustration that life without God is pointless It's a joyless existence that makes absolutely no sense at all. It's just pure madness. And he wrote this book so that others like us could learn from his experience that life is meaningless apart from relationship with God. He wanted his readers to realize that there is a God and that life is a gift from him and the key to to fully enjoying that gift of life that God has given is to honor and obey him. But he's like a a good mystery writer. I don't particularly care for mysteries, but I know that um, in many movies it's a similar scenario that a good mystery writer will provide clues along the way, but then waits until the very end of the book to answer the questions that have been raised, right, uh, in our minds as we read or as we watch that movie. And so Ecclesiastes is, is very puzzling, Uh, In fact, some would say it's the most puzzling book, the most difficult book to interpret uh, in all the Word of God, and yet the final verses here that we're going to look at tonight, verses 8 through 14, provide the key to unraveling the meaning of this book. And so if you've been confused up to this point uh, as to what in the world this book is all about, why is this book in the Bible? Well, verses 8 through 14 unlock the meaning of Ecclesiastes and really reveal what life is all about and how to enjoy life to the fullest. And I think I was, you know, most most people, I think, assume you can either enjoy life or obey God. Think about that. I think that's what most people think. You can either, you you only got two options, right? You got a life uh, to live and you can either... Honor God with your life, or you can um, do what you want with your life. You can enjoy yourself. 
you can either make God happy or you can make yourself happy. It's, it's, it, we tend to see these two things as, as mutually exclusive, that there's no way to obey and honor God and have fun at the same time. That piety and, and pleasure cannot coexist. But Ecclesiastes teaches us that it is possible to do both and to do both well. It shows us how to obey God and enjoy life all at the same time. In fact, it shows us that obeying God is the key to enjoying life. That's the key right there. Obeying God is the key to enjoying life. And so the overall message of the book is to honor God and have fun. In fact, when, when I began my study of this uh, months ago, I thought about that being the title. Just very simple, honor God, have fun. Because that's essentially what uh, this book is about. And uh, we, we saw that last week. If you were here, remember verse 9 of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 9, rejoice, young man. That's another word for what? Be happy, right? Rejoice, enjoy, young man, uh, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. You're like, whoa, Solomon is telling me to go for it. And if I want to do it, I should go do it. I should just go for it and just enjoy life. Yet... Know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also who? Your creator in the days of your youth. And then he goes on to talk about this process, excuse me, of aging and and dying. And so his point is, listen, before you get too old... And before you die, make sure that you give your heart to your maker and your sustainer and the one who's going to be your judge someday. And we talked about how we need to live our lives without reserves and without regrets. And uh, how do we do that? Well, we need to live an action-packed life. We need to live a fun-filled life. We need to live a God-centered life. And again, he emphasizes this in light of our aging and dying. And in verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Again, he's emphasizing man's mortality, which by the way, most of us don't like to think about death, particularly our death, right? But Solomon just kept rubbing our noses in death and in our own mortality and just saying, look, you're going to die someday. Get over it. And, uh, but let that motivate you to live a better life. In other words, let your death motivate your life. And, and, and so in other words, we don't think enough about our death because there's nothing more motivating, right, than to realize, you know what, I'm not always going to be here and ultimately I'm going to stand before God someday and I'm going to be answerable to God. I'm going to have to give an answer to God for my life. And so it's, it's highly motivating. And so he talks about our death, but... We also know verse 7 is not the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Death isn't the end of life. There's more to life than what we experience here on earth. There is life above and beyond the sun. Amen? We've heard Solomon over and over and over again some 30 times, 29, 30 times, 
He talks about under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. What did, what did he mean by under the sun? He's basically just talking about life under the sun. In other words, life here on this earth. Everything that we see and feel here, it's the, it's the horizontal. It's, it's life down here on planet earth. And so in this final section, Solomon takes us above the sun and beyond the sun to eternity. And he challenges us to live our lives in light of eternity. And I've just broken up this section into three um, sections here. Verse 8, we could call life's vanity or life's futility. Verses 9 through 12, we could call Solomon's credibility or veracity. And then verses 13 and 14 is man's responsibility or man's accountability. Let's just look at these here briefly tonight as we wrap up this study. Number one is life's vanity or life's futility. Verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Sound familiar? That's how he began uh, the book. If you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3... Or excuse me, verse 2, uh, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so he's, he's basically restating his thesis. Those of you in college, especially some college students, right, you know about the thesis statement, right? You, you, start, it with, you start, start with the thesis statement and you end with the thesis statement. Your, your teachers or your professors are drumming that principle into your head, Right? Uh, that's, how, that's good writing, and so that's what he does. He concludes his journal by restating his thesis of the futility of all human effort and all human wisdom apart from God. So he's, he's coming full circle here, and he's basically saying, okay, I've proved my thesis. Isn't that the reason why you write a thesis? When you write a thesis at the thesis statement at the beginning in the introduction, you say basically this is what I'm going to set out to prove in this paper, right? In this essay, in this exposition, and then when you're done, you restate and say, there, there you go. Therefore, this is my point again. I, I prove that. And so he's saying, I, I prove the fact that, that all is vanity, that life is meaningless, it's empty, there's no permanent fulfillment, there's no lasting satisfaction, there's no purpose apart from God or without God. So he used that word vanity close to 40 times uh, in the book over and over again, he just Again, beating up, beating, uh, reminding us relentlessly that life without God is pointless. It's, it's nothing but a big waste of time. Everything about it is temporary. It's, it's transitory. It's fleeting. And no matter how much you accomplish or how much you accumulate in life, life is still meaningless apart from a relationship with your creator who will one day be your judge. And he's essentially saying, what a tragedy in this context, right, he just talked about then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. In other words, you just died. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. What a tragedy to have lived and died without ever enjoying life, let alone knowing what life was all about to begin with. What a tragedy that you lived, but you never lived. And so again, this has been a problem uh, for anyone who studies this book. In fact, some have concluded that this is just uh, an extremely nihilistic, pessimistic, fatalistic perspective on life. But this isn't the last word. 
I mean, if that was the last word, if that was the last verse, and, and, uh, and the, song, song, or excuse me, the, the book of Ecclesiastes ended with verse 8, we might be able to conclude that. But Solomon's not done yet. There's a method to his madness. He, he's setting us up. And even though it appears that we're kind of right back where we started from and didn't really get anywhere, uh, there, there's still more that he wants to share with us, and, and the final words that he wrote here put the entire book, and more importantly, life, back into proper perspective. And I think it's interesting and that most commentators believe that an editor added verses 9 through 14. In other words, this was, these weren't Solomon's words. There's no way they could be Solomon's words because, man, he, he, that's, this is not you know, Solomon's uh, perspective throughout the, the rest of the book. And that vanity of vanity, since he preached all his vanity, he, in other words, that's naturally where he would have ended, where he started, and that's it. And so somebody came along and said, man, that's kind of a negative book. We've got we to gotta fix this up a little bit. We've got we to gotta correct that. And so we've got to add a, little, a few more verses to kind of give us some hope and make it sound like it belongs in the Bible. Well, I don't agree at all. I think this is clearly Solomon's own summary because we see uh, what he talks about in verses 9 through 14. We see the seeds of this sprinkled throughout his memoirs. He, he's leading up to this. This is the big crescendo, the epic conclusion, and he's kind of been hinting at this all the way along, giving us, dropping these clues, these hints along the way, and now he just comes out and says it. And so before he gives us the conclusion in verses 13 and 14, he, he wants to affirm his credibility, his veracity, his truthfulness, why what you have just read and why what you just studied for the last three or four months, wherever, how many years, you know, we've been doing this, I guess, six months now studying this, um, why we should listen to this, why we should believe this, why we should take this to the bank, why we should apply this to our lives. Who, who's, who is this guy? Why, why should we listen to him? So he says this, verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. So Solomon is referring to himself here as a wise master teacher, who, by the way, was one of the three kinds of leaders uh, in the Old Testament through whom God revealed his will to Israel. There, there were prophets, there were priests, and there were teachers or wise men. And so he's including himself in one of those three categories uh, of, of people that God used in the Old Testament to, to proclaim truth. And he calls himself the preacher. We, we talked about this back in the very beginning, first verse, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Chapter 7, verse 27, he says, Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. And there's a lot of discussion about, well, who's the preacher? Well, the preacher is Solomon. And uh, the word for preacher in the Hebrew is literally one who addresses an assembly. That sounds like a good definition of a preacher, right? That's what I'm doing right now. I'm addressing an assembly. And I think it's interesting, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the word used for Ecclesiastes, the koaleth, if you will, was Ecclesiastes, 
which is derived from ekklesia. You guys know what that word is in the Greek? Church, the congregation. And so the point is that, that, that Solomon intended for others to go to church, if you will, or go to school on his autobiography. He wanted people to learn from his experience that life is meaningless apart from relationship with God and that it's futile to try to enjoy life without honoring and obeying God. And so he's essentially saying, listen, I tried it and it didn't work. Life is not worth living unless you live it for God. And so he sought to pass on his wisdom in the form of Proverbs, he says here. Um, Many Proverbs after carefully weighing them and testing them for accuracy. In other words, he didn't just throw this book together. He didn't just throw his memoirs together haphazardly, but he carefully, methodically uh, composed them, and he thought long and hard about the best way to arrange what he was going to say and communicate his thoughts as clearly and creatively as possible. That's what he's saying here uh, when he talks about the preacher sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly. He was, he was seeking to strike the balance between artistry and accuracy, between being practical and being faithful. And that's always a challenge if you're teaching God's Word, right? You, you don't want to bore people with the Bible, and so you want to be creative, you want to be compelling, you want to say things in ways that they've never heard it said before, like John Piper is a classic example when he came out with this, this term Christian hedonism. And we were all like, whoa, what are you talking about, dude? And it freaked people out. But then he explained it and we're like, oh, wow, that's pretty radical. He just thought of a creative way to, to teach what does it mean to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we need to be thinking of how we can be very relevant and very creative as we teach the, the word of God, but not at the expense of truth. And sometimes people overdo it and they're trying to be so cute and, 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 and creative, right, and novel that you're like, where did he get that? That's not even in the scripture. I don't know. He's making that stuff up now. And it's more about his creative illustration or his cool outline or whatever, right, that you miss the point of the text. And so he was trying his best to make it interesting so as to gain and keep the attention of his readers, but at the same time, he didn't want to compromise the truth. He wanted to make sure he was being accurate and correct, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Notice verse 11. This is interesting. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Solomon is referring now to his words, the words of wise men, the book of Proverbs. Uh, we talk about wisdom literature, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, five wisdom books or po- the poetry section of the scriptures. He's saying the, the words of wise men are like goads and masters of the collections are like well-driven nails. So he, he references two shepherding tools, two tools that shepherds would use to explain the importance of the book of Ecclesiastes, and the surrounding wisdom literature in the Old Testament. He, he says, first of all, the, these words of wisdom or wise men are like goads. A goad is a, a sharp instrument that was designed to prod and motivate a reluctant animal to go in the direction that the shepherd wanted him to go. And the goal wasn't to hurt the animal, but to inflict just enough pain 
to get their attention and secure their cooperation. Those of you that are, have ever worked with cattle, right, you know what a cattle prod is, right? And, and now they're not just sharp, they're like electrified, right? The point is you're not, you don't want to hurt the cow, but you want to kind of motivate them, right, to go in the right direction. And so uh, goads are mentioned in the New Testament, Acts chapter 26, verse 14, uh, when Paul was sharing his testimony uh, to one of the, the kings uh, of, of the day, he said, when, when we had all fallen to the ground, talking about on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared and there was this great light and they just knocked them all to the ground, he said, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he likened Paul to this ornery, you know, whatever, ornery goat, ornery donkey, ornery camel, right? And, and here's the, you know, you're, 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 you're prodding the, the, the goad, you're goading them in the rear end, and what are they doing? They're just like, they're kicking at you, right? They're bucking at you, and he's saying, hey, Paul, stop, stop kicking at me, stop bucking, bucking me. You're, 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 I'm trying to prod you to go in the right direction, and you're just, you're just kicking me away. So he's saying these, these words, let's just say the book of Ecclesiastes, all right, is like a goad. It's like a sharp, pointy stick to kind of get you to go in the right direction and kind of keep you, right, from, from going off track here and kind of keep you going down the path where you're supposed to go. Notice he also describes it as, as, a, as a well-driven nail. He said, uh, and the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. Um, what, do, what do nails do? They provide stability. They provide security. I read somewhere that this may be a reference to uh, the practice of a shepherd tethering his sheep. Oftentimes, uh, a shepherd would, would put a nail, a stake in the ground and tie off his sheep to that tether uh, so that they couldn't wander away from the fold or they wouldn't get blown away in a storm. Like when a storm came, they would just like tether the sheep to the stake so the sheep wouldn't blow away. And so you look at the way he words this. I, I think this is so helpful. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. In other words, if you master the book of Ecclesiastes, and you master the book of Proverbs, you master the book of Psalms, you master the book of Job or the so- Song of Solomon, guess what? You are going to be anchored. You're not going to wander off, Right? You're not going to get blown away, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, 14, right? As a, as a result, we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And so this is very helpful, right? Goads are very helpful then keep you on the straight and narrow, going in the right direction and continually moving in your walk with the Lord, but also it kind of anchors you. And so both nails and, and goads picture how our lives will be affected if we apply what Solomon has been saying in this book. That the truth in this book, if you apply the truth in this book, if you master the truth in this book, it should spur you on and tie you down. It should spur you on and it should tie you down. And then notice how he ends verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. 
I don't know if your Bible has a capital S. Does it have a capital S? That's good. You got a good translation. Because I think it's a reference there to God himself. We know that in the Old Testament that God is likened to, the, to a shepherd, right? Um, Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1, hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Psalm 95, verse 6, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his what? Pasture, the flock under his care. So what is Solomon doing here? He's saying that really, ultimately, these are not the words of a wise man. These are words of the shepherd himself, God himself. So if you're here at the end of this thinking, ah, this is just some, some, some crazy guy, right, talking about his life. This is just some personal diary of some maniac who, you know, acted like an idiot and did all this stuff that he shouldn't have done. No, no, these ultimately, this book, this book is not me. I'm not giving you this book. God's giving you this book. And so he's claiming divine inspiration for what he had written. And we know the New Testament talks about the inspiration of Scripture, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture, including the book of Ecclesiastes, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You say, how does that work? How did the inspiration of Scripture work? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own, one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever made, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what Solomon is claiming is, it's not like I woke up one night and thought, hey, I think I'll write, a, write down my memoirs to help other people, you know, uh, learn to avoid the, the, the hard lessons I had to learn myself. No, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Spirit of God moved Solomon to write exactly what he wanted him to write, and exactly the way he wanted to write it. And so I appreciate what Philip Ryken says. He says, Ecclesiastes is the very word of God. The preacher's words are not merely the musings of some skeptical philosopher. They are part of the inspired, infallible, inerrant revelation of the Almighty God. Therefore, we must submit to their authority. As the shepherd of our souls, God uses this book as he uses everything written in the Bible to prod us into spiritual action. And so again, he's talking about his credibility, his veracity, and says, ultimately, you're not listening to me, you're listening to who? You're listening to God. So you can trust what I'm saying here. And then notice how he goes on in verse 12. But beyond this, beyond what the shepherd has said, my son... Be warned, and you know Solomon used to love that. In the book of Proverbs, he says it like 23, 24 times. My son, my son, my son, my son, my son. He's talking tenderly to his son, a young person. But beyond this, my son, be what? Warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. 
And all the college students said, amen, right? Like that's your new life verse. Um, I think it's interesting that Solomon wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit before there were printing, printing presses, before there were computers, right? And there was still a, a, a myriad of books that were being produced. And so Solomon warned his readers here to avoid looking for answers to life's questions in other books than this one. And we know there's no end to books that have been written and will be written attempting to explain the purpose and meaning of life. And what Solomon is saying, listen, if you're really serious about discovering the truth about life and unraveling the the mysteries of life, don't waste your time, don't wear yourself out reading other books when the answers you're searching for are right here in the Bible. You don't need to look any further. This is the final authority right here. Why waste your time? Why wear yourself out? Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, no human being on earth has the time or energy to search through these materials for solutions to the enigmas and the problems of life. Fortunately, we do not need to resort to such a task. The Lord has given us the answers we need to the most fundamental questions of life, and he has brought them together into one book, the Bible. Therefore, his word should be our primary authority guide, or excuse me, our primary authoritative guide for living. And I would just warn you, college students, okay, because you're all here tonight. I don't often get to see you. Be careful when you're off at the university because they're going to require that you read a lot of books. And the books aren't necessarily going to line up with Scripture, right? And, uh, and, and they'll present these books like, well, you know, this is really important. You read this and they'll get all philosophical on you. And next thing you know, it'll cause you to begin to, it'll, it'll, it might begin to make you question the Bible as the final authority. And so just remember that the, the Word of God is the final authority, and if whatever you're reading doesn't match up with the Scriptures, with the truth of the Scriptures, then don't believe it. You might have to read it, right, because it's required for the class. It doesn't mean you have to believe it. I'll never forget reading a book by a guy named Job Martin called The Evolution of a Creationist. I know some of you have probably read that book. We had him here years ago to do a conference on creation, and and uh, in fact, one of our uh, dear saints here got saved through uh, hearing uh, about creation as opposed to evolution. But he's got this little book called the, creation, or the Evolution of a Creationist, talking about himself. And this is how he begins the book. He says, quote, if you have time to read this book today, but have not taken the time to read your Bible, then you do not have time to read this book. There's a guy, an author, Right? Wrote a book, nothing wrong with writing books, nothing wrong with reading other books besides the Bible, but he was acknowledging, listen, if you haven't read your Bible yet, put this book down and go read your Bible. It's more important that you read your Bible than you read my book. And so we need to, really all roads on our quest for truth end in surrender to God who's provided everything we need to know in his word. And I would just say, if, you're, if, you, if you don't do that, if you don't heed this warning, and you go off on your quest for truth, looking at all sorts of different things in this world and reading all sorts of different books and listening to all sorts of different speakers and going to all sorts of different seminars, trying to find the true meaning of life, 
you will be like that person that Paul described in 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And there are some extremely intelligent people on this planet who have read circles around any of us. All of us put together, they've read more stuff, right? They've been to more seminars, more conferences. They've been to India and, India and you know, look, contemplated their navel and all the other things you do in life to find meaning and purpose. Guess what? They're, they're more lost than ever. They're, 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 they, they're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because they've rejected the place of truth, the source of truth. It's this right here. You don't have to go to India. Save, save yourself a trip, okay? It's right here. I like what was said about John Wesley. John Wesley was a very uh, literate man who read voraciously, and yet he described himself as a man of one book. A man of one book. And yes, we promote a lot of reading around here, right? You've got to read this book. Have you read that book? You've got to read this book. We've got a resource center, right? We're telling you to go shopping and buy books to give. Nothing wrong with reading books, but let's be a people ultimately of one book, amen? That this is the book that matters the most. And so finally, we, we see him talking about his credibility, his veracity, why you should trust what he's saying here, because ultimately this is the word of God, not the word of Solomon. But then look at finally... The conclusion here, and we'll just call it man's responsibility or man's accountability. Man's responsibility or man's accountability. He says in verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. So he finally just comes out and says what he's been hinting at all along, that there is life above the sun and, 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 it's, and it's God right? God is the one who's above the sun, and we need to fear him. We need to revere him and respect him and honor him and stand in awe of him. And again, he, he talked about this fear of God already. For those that think, well, surely Solomon couldn't have written this last section. Doesn't sound like him. Oh yeah? Well, what about Ecclesiastes 3.14? I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should, what? Fear him. Chapter 5, verse 7, for in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. Chapter 7, verse 15, uh, well, we'll just go right to verse 18. It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Chapter 8, verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. So he's already been hinting about this, right? Now he just comes out and says it that you need to fear God. Again, it doesn't mean like live in fear, like oh, I'm, I'm terrified of God, right? It's this holy reverence and awe of God that causes you to want to honor him and ultimately to keep his commandments. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. The person who fears God will pay attention to what God has to say, right? I always talk about it with my kids is, hey, listen, if I'm talking to you, I want you to look at me I want you to pay attention to me because that shows respect, right? And so if you respect God, you'll listen to what he has to say in his word and you want to obey what he tells you to do. And 
And this obedience here that, that, that Solomon is, is advocating is not a drudgery, but, but it's a joy. We have to keep that in mind whenever we talk about fearing God and obeying God, that we don't get this idea of like the Christian life is, oh man, I got I to live in fear of God and I got to live in obedience. And it's like God's always up there ready to hit me over the head with a stick if I, do, if I get out of line, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Solomon's not loading us up with some burdensome yoke of fearing God and obeying God, no. This yoke is easy and, and this burden is light, if you are motivated out of love, 1 John 4.18, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So what, what are you motivated? Are you motivated out of fear, or are you motivated out of love, right? Then I love 1 John 5, 3. It says it so well. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. It's not like, oh man, this obedience stuff is just a pain in the neck. Why do I have to obey God? Why do I have to obey my parents? Why do I have to obey the you know, authority? You know, it's, not, it's not a pain in the neck. It's a joy to obey. If it's a pain in the neck for you to obey God, you should question whether or not you even know him. If it's just a, it's just a bother to you, then you probably don't know him. You probably don't know Christ. You know what this is, guys? This is, this is the owner's manual for life that God lovingly gracious and graciously gave to us. And when all else fails, read the instructions, Right? Don't wait for you to for your life to get messed up, right? To to have to get get out the owner's manual. Just just read it every day and, and make sure you're doing what it's telling you to do. And notice what he says here. I love this. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. The NIV says this is the duty of all mankind. Anybody have an NIV that says that? This is the duty of all mankind. Interesting. Not a helpful translation at that point, only because the word duty isn't in the Hebrew text. The, the word there is more like, this is the whole of everyone. This isn't our duty, this is our essence. In other words, this, this is the purpose of everyone's life. This is what life is all about. This is why we all exist. That's the point. This is why we're here on this earth, is to fear God and keep His commandments. And if you ever wonder, what in the world am I doing here? What is the purpose of life? Well, there you have it. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's why you're here. Some of you college kids, I'm, I'm just talking to you college kids tonight because you're here. I'm seeing you all over the place. I'm loving it. Okay? Some of you guys have no clue what you're going to do after you get out of college. You still know what major to declare, to declare, right? Some of you guys are there, you, just, you have no clue. You're like, wow, I don't know, what, I don't know why, what, what, what I'm supposed to do with my life. Listen, you know more than most 
kids your age if you know this, right? Because this is God's will for your life. Whether you're an engineer, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a dentist, a physical therapist, whether you are a truck driver, whatever you decide to do in life, wherever God leads you, it's going to all be the same. At the end of the day, fear God and keep his commands. Whether you're a doctor or you're a veterinarian or you're working at Walmart, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. Simplifies life, doesn't it? So be encouraged. You stay on track with that, and God will reveal his, his secret will to you, who he wants you to marry, who he want, where he wants you to work, where he wants you to live, all that kind of stuff. He'll reveal that to you, but this is his revealed will. And you just stick with this. This is God's will for your life right now. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then notice verse 14. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So here's a a motivation here. Why should you fear God and keep his commandments? Because for, this is the purpose or the reason why you should fear God and keep his commandments. It's because God will bring every act of judgment, whether everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon concludes here with this sobering reality that every one of us is going to stand before God someday and answer to him for how we lived our lives. He gave us a gift called life. And he's going to hold us accountable someday. What did you do with that gift I gave you? I thought it was interesting. I read somewhere that the Masoretic Jews, um, who were the Jews that were really protecting the the scriptures after the time of Christ for a, a number of years, that they translated the Old Testament. And when they did that, and they got here to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, they switched verses 13 and 14 because they felt like verse 14 was too ominous a note to end the book. It was too like, well, that's too negative. Well, let's, let's flip that around. So they swept the verses. In fact, I, I even read that some Jews today, when they read uh, Ecclesiastes in the synagogue, they repeat verse 13 after 14, just so we can end on a positive note. And uh, again, this is nothing new. If you've been with us and reading through and studying the, the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he's been talking about judgment all the way through this thing. That even though it may appear that people are getting way away with sin and there's injustices, there's inequities in life, uh, ultimately they'll be exposed and judged by God in the end. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes what? The judgment. And so at the end of the day, death is not the great equalizer. Judgment is. And God will bring every act to judgment and uh, Riken says it this way. He says, this is not all there is. In other words, this is not under the sun. This is not all there is. Not, you just get old and die. That's it. See you later. You go out of existence. No. There is a God in heaven who rules the world. There is a lie. Uh, there is a lie to come after this life. There, excuse me. There's a, lot to, there's a life to come after this life. One day, the dead will be raised and every person who has ever lived will stand before God for judgment. When that day comes, it will be revealed that everything anyone ever did or said or thought has eternal significance. Did you hear that? Everything that anyone ever did or said or thought has eternal significance. See, the world doesn't think that way. You know how the world thinks? This is how the world thinks. You know what? There's no God. And if there's no God, then how can there be any right and wrong? And if there's no right and wrong, then how can there be any judgment? So I'm just going to go out and do whatever I want. 
and uh, life becomes a meaningless free-for-all where nothing matters. It doesn't matter what you do. But we know the truth of the Word of God is that there is a God who has told us what is right and wrong, and He will hold us accountable someday for whether or not we obeyed what He said was right and wrong. And guess what that means? That means everything matters. Every word, every deed, every thought, every motive, right, matters to God. And this is a kind of a frightening line. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is what? Hidden. In other words, we're not just going to be judged based on what we appear to be. We're going to be judged according to who we really are. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, don't you judge me. Don't, don't judge me. I won't judge you. Because ultimately, you don't know my heart. I had a pastor friend one time said, you know, he kind of grew weary of pastors always coming up to one another and go, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's your ministry going? How's your ministry going? How's it going at your church? Right? And it's just like, you get weary of that question. And so he decided he's going to start answering when anybody says, hey, how's it going? How's your ministry going? He says, I don't know. I'll have to die and go to heaven to find out. <laughs> In other words, you might think my ministry is going really well. I might think my ministry is going really bad. It, ultimately, what I think and what you think about my ministry is irrelevant. What does God think? Let me just clarify something very quickly here, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but, but here we're talking about this judgment. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. We need to understand that Solomon was dealing with limited revelation here. We're thankful that, that the revelation of God didn't stop in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've got the whole New Testament, amen? So we know what that judgment is going to look like. He, he, probably wasn't, he probably wasn't as clear about this judgment as we are. We know more about this judgment than Solomon did. How cool is that? How much more accountable are we because of that, right? But there's basically two types of judgment. There's a judgment for unbelievers, right? This, this judgment will look differently for unbelievers and believers, okay? For unbelievers, you will stand before God at the great, great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20 Talks about how all those who have died, right, without Christ, they've rejected Christ, they don't know Christ, they will be resurrected, and they'll stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and he will look to see if their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and the point is, they're not. And they'll be judged by being cast into hell for all eternity. That's the great white throne judgment. So one man said this, what will happen to those who have lived and died without so much as thought of God? The supreme folly of living as they have done will at last be revealed. All that they have ever lived for will have come to nothing. That's unbelievers. Believers, different kind of judgment. We're not going to stand before the great white throne. We're going to stand before what the Bible calls the Bema Seat Judgment. Um, first, first, first Corinthians chapter 3 talks about this, this Bema Seat and how we, our works will be tested, Right? If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. 
For the day will show it because it is revealed with fire. Fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So no one that goes before the Bema seat judgment will ever go to hell. It's not about salvation at that point. It's more uh, rewarding us for our works, um, what we do for the Lord, and ultimately our motives for why we do what we do. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Notice, we're being recompensed for our deeds, not our sins. Big difference there. And if you're a Christian, your sins were already judged where? At the cross, right? So you can't be judged again for your sins. We were learning that in the Gospel of John, right? John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. You've already passed out. If you're a Christian, you've committed your life to Christ, you've already passed out of judgment into life, out of death into life. Romans 8, 1, there is now no, what? Condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ, And so Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said it this way. He said, eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset, and eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. So if you're an unbeliever, you don't have much to look forward to. Your your existence will be like night that that the sun will never rise. But those of us who are in Christ, right, it's going to be a day that the sun never sets. It's going to be daytime for the, all of eternity. And so the bottom line here, when all is said and done, the certainty and the finality of judgment gave meaning to Solomon, to his life, who often foolishly was flitting around from here to there. But ultimately, it was the accountability to God whose ways are even mysterious and you can't always figure them out, but I know one thing is true, that I'm going to stand before him someday. I may not be able to figure out his ways, right? And all that he's up to, but I know one thing, I'm going to stand before him. I think it was Mark Twain that said what bothered him was not everything in the Bible that he didn't understand, it was the parts of the Bible he did understand. (laughs) That's what concerned him. So the bottom line of life, listen, fear God and obey God because someday you're going to face God. And ultimately, when we talk about facing God, who are we talking about facing? Jesus, Romans 2, 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Remember the book of Acts, Acts 17, 31. It's interesting here. Because he has fixed a day, God, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who's the man who rose from the dead? Jesus, right? And so the key is, you get to judgment day, right? You want to know Jesus. (laughs) And you want him to know you. 
And, and if you know Jesus, all will go well, right? If you know the judge, right? Say you had to go before a judge, you did something wrong, you broke the law, you had to go before the judge, and uh, would you rather not know the judge or would you rather know the judge? I think I'd rather know the judge. And so the key is knowing the judge, Jesus. And so because life, that there is life above the sun and beyond the sun, at the end of the day, instead of saying vanity of vanities, all is vanity, we can share Paul's confidence in Christ when he said this, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Vanity of vanities doesn't apply to us as Christians. Our life and our labor is not in vain. We not, we, again, we, we may not be able to understand all the ways of God and, and, and all the way he works to fulfill his plans and his purposes, but we can follow his rules for daily living in the word and help bring about his plans and purposes to fruition. And ultimately, what we get, the book of Ecclesiastes begins, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? What's the advantage? What do we get? What do we get for it? We get God. We get God. We get the living God. There's nothing greater than that, nothing more glorious than that. We get God. And ultimately, that's the only thing that's going to make us happy. It's the only thing that's going to satisfy us. It's the only thing that's going to give us meaning and purpose in life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have graciously given us this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, that you inspired Solomon to write so that it would help us just to shake off all the the, the craziness, the madness of this world that we live in, where people are running to and fro, trying to find happiness and satisfaction and meaning and purpose in, in things under the sun. And Lord, thank you for delivering us from that hopeless existence by giving us truth that we can learn and, and live by. And so, Lord, I pray that we would uh, find great joy in fearing you and obeying you and keeping your commandments, knowing that someday we're going to stand before you, and it's not something that we need to dread, but something that we can look forward to, especially because we know the judge, and that we are ultimately clothed uh, in his righteousness, and he's the one that will be our intercessor. He'll intercede for us, and he'll tell you that he died for our sin. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray you'd apply this book to our lives so that we're never the same and we never fall into the vanities of this earth and this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.